All right, let's turn our thoughts to God's Word and let the truth that He has revealed in it for our salvation sink deep in our bones. As you know, we've been studying through the ancient Christian creed known as the Apostles' Creed, um, which is as old as the generation immediately after the Apostles. And it's a, it's a faithful, brief summary of, of their teaching on the, on, the, on, the, on the gospel. It's called the Apostles' Creed, not because the Apostles wrote it, but like I said, it's just a faithful summary of what they taught. And we've been confessing it together each week so far, just like we did tonight. And I love the thought that every time we confess it, we are joining together with brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world who are confessing that same confession every time they gather for worship. And not just, not just Christians all over the world, but really throughout the centuries uh, from the very beginning that we're joining with this cloud of witnesses for 2,000 years, confessing the same faith that they confessed. It's It's awesome. But here we are tonight, we're moving ahead in, our, uh, in the second major section of that creed that's focusing on Christ. It's sort of broken up in three sections. You probably already noticed it has sort of a Trinitarian uh, structure to it. So God the Father was in the first section. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And then there's a new section. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And then it goes... It's the longest section of the, of the creed that just sort of moves through the main events of his life revealed to us in the Gospels. And then it, it has this third section. It's just one brief little line, I believe, in the Holy Spirit and those other things. That, by the way, just that, that Trinitarian doctrine would take, in the history of the church, it would take more and more formal and distinct shape over the next centuries because we're talking second century early 2nd century for the Apostles' Creed. And over the next few centuries, more, and more creeds and confessions would be, uh, would be published that were springboarding off the Apostles' Creed. And I'm thinking mainly about the Nicene Creed, if you've heard of that one, or the Athanasian Creed, which is much longer. Um, if you're not familiar with those, you can look them up later. And when you, re- when you read those, Nicene Creed, Athanasian Creed, you can see how they are loosely structured after the, the Apostles' Creed around this Trinitarian kind of formula, but they're both a bit longer. They're just in, in a lot more detailed. The importance and the significance of the Apostles' Creed um, cannot be overstated in the history of the church. It just can't. And tonight we're going to turn our attention to two phrases of massive importance in the Creed as it pertains to what we believe and what we confess about Christ. Um, this week, last week we talked about his deity. Why? Because we said, we, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Those are, that's deity language. Son of God. Lord. Only God is Lord. This week, we're turning our attention to his humanity and particularly the creed's uh, confession that the Lord Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. That's what we're going to think about tonight. Maybe the only time we tend to focus on this doctrine is around Christmas time, which is certainly appropriate to think about at that time and in that season. But it's without question a doctrine that we should think about more often than just that. Um, 
We need to be convinced in our own minds from Scripture why we believe it and why it is such an important truth. So to begin with, let's open our Bibles, if you have one with you. Uh, Let's turn to one of the two gospel accounts that describe the events of the birth of Christ for us. So let's find Matthew chapter 1. The other place is in Luke's gospel, which we will look at a little bit later. We'll begin our focus tonight with Matthew's account, verses 18 to 25. So when you find that place, I invite you to follow along with me as I read aloud, beginning in verse 18, and read through verse 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. It's for Isaiah 7, 14, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, would you help us as we think about uh, your word here and the many other scriptures that we're going to think about tonight. We confess our faith that what we just read and along with all the other scriptures that we're going to think about tonight, they are your, your inerrant, inspired, sufficient, clear, authoritative, necessary, holy word. It's not just the words of Matthew, not just the words of Luke or of Paul or of Moses. No, these are, this is your word spoken through them. As, as, as Peter says in 2 Peter, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we, we come to this place and this hour with reverence because of what it is we're thinking about what it is we hold in our hands. We hold in our hands the very Word of God. So would you please give us eyes to see the truth that's here? Would you give us minds to understand what you would have us to understand in this, in this passage? And would you give us hearts to embrace this truth and love it and care? Would you give us wills to obey whatever you would have us to, to do with it, even if it's merely to repent and believe, if it's to worship? Help us to obey what you call us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, it's easy to see how this line of the creed, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. It's easy to see how it comes straight out of the apostolic witness of the New Testament. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's in verse, that's confirmed right there in verse 20 if you're looking at it. Uh, Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. We confess he was born of the Virgin Mary. That's confirmed in this passage as we're explicitly told 
in verse 18 that Mary was found to be with a child before she and Joseph had come together. And in fact, it says at the very end that uh, he, he knew her not until she had given birth to the child. And then it was in that same verse in verse 18 that we're also told that she was found to be a child from the Holy Spirit. So there's two basic angles that I want to think about this truth tonight with you. I want to think about it from one angle is what, what, what is the truth that is that these, what, what are some truths that this affirmation teaches? He was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. What does that teach us about Jesus? Just truths about him that we need to know and just be solid in our understanding of and why, why we believe it. Secondly, though, why does it matter? Why does it matter? Why should we care? And I hope we can leave tonight having an answer to both of those questions in our, in our minds. And I want to think through, the, through three things tonight about Christ that address those two, those two angles. At least in my mind, they do. The first thing is, in answer to what does it teach us about Christ, it teaches us again that he is the God-man. He is the God-man. Last week I said, like I said, we thought about the, the evidence for the, the deity of Jesus, that he is God. But, and, 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 and if the idea of being born of the Virgin Mary teaches us anything, it's his humanity. He was born as a man. And, and so we'll likewise think through some of the biblical evidence for his true humanity and why that's important. That's the first thing it teaches us. The second thing this doctrine teaches us about Christ is not just that he's the God-man, but this doctrine is, is, the, is, the, is the foundational doctrine to the truth that he is the sinless Savior. He's a sinless Savior. Apart from this doctrine, if, if, it, if it were not true, it's not a throwaway kind of doctrine. If it's not for this doctrine, uh, then Jesus is just a really good man. He's just a really good man, which is insufficient for anybody's salvation. Right. Third and final thing this doctrine teaches about Christ is he is the dawn of a new creation. He is the dawn of the new creation. And I hope to make clear in your mind what that means if you don't know what that means when I say it. This is so beautifully taught in Scripture and so crucial to our, our, um, our salvation and our hope as Christians. So let's, that being said, let's jump in and think about the humanity of Christ, that he's not simply God. Uh, which he is from all eternity, but in time and in space, as Colossians says, in the fullness of time, he was born of woman, born under the law, born as a man. And now and forevermore, he is the God-man in one person. So almost from the very beginning of the Christian faith, from the days of the New Testament itself, and certainly from the very first generation after that, when the, when the Apostles' Creed was beginning to be put down on paper, there were misunderstandings about who Jesus is, misunderstandings about the gospel. And some of those uh, false teachings, later officially deemed heresies, so don't go down those roads, they had, they had either to do with the deity of Jesus or the humanity of Jesus. They, they sent, they, the, 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 false, the false understandings tended to err on one side of that, that spectrum or the other. They either misunderstood his deity to the... To the, to the overemphasis of his humanity, or they misunderstood his humanity on the overemphasis of his deity. Like, it was one of those, like, some denied his deity. Like, our, that's Arianism. Denied his deity. That's modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses. They didn't, have a, they didn't have a problem believing he was a man, or even a special man. 
But there was a time, as they said, there was a time when he was not. He's not eternal. He's not God. They denied his deity. Others denied his humanity. Um, that heresy is called docetism, D-O-C-E, if you're taking notes, docetism, D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M. It's from the Greek word dokeo, which means to seem. He just seemed to be a man. Like he really was God, and he seemed to be a man if you looked at him, but there was, it wasn't real like, just like our flesh and blood. Why do they say that? The, the docetists were influenced by ideas prevalent in their day that, that matter, flesh and blood matter, the material world was evil, inherently evil. And so it seemed inconceivable to them that the Son of God would come and actually take on human flesh, which was not just humble but was evil. So they couldn't believe that. So they had, that had, by the way, far-reaching consequences, it would, it would, not the least of which... To deny his real humanity would be to deny his death on the cross, would be to deny his resurrection from the dead, and uh, that undermines the very root of our hope of salvation. If Christ hadn't been raised, Paul said, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So you might think it's very obvious that Jesus was humid, human, humid. It is humid out here. That he was human. You might think that's, that's obvious, but it was not always so. And still to this day, we may, even in our minds, think about it. If, even if you have a perfectly orthodox understanding of something, what do you believe about Jesus? And you could perfectly orthodox explanation come out of your mouth. You might still, in the course of your thinking, emphasize one aspect of Jesus over the other. For example, you might, just in your own thinking, emphasize his deity over his humanity or his humanity over his deity to the neglect of the other one, even though you confess faith and trust in both. So we need to understand clearly why scripturally we believe that he is God and man and why those two things always need to be held together, why we shouldn't think of one to the neglect of the other. So why do we believe from scripture that Jesus is genuinely um, and truly human? For one, here's one reason, Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah envisioned a human coming. A man would come. Well-known prophecies, like we just read it, quoted in Matthew 1, but Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. So a son would be born. Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, right? To us a son is given. This is a man who is going to come. Or consider, consider the covenant that God made uh, even earlier with David in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. God tells David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. Jesus would be born in the line of David through Joseph, his adoptive father, right? But he was born of human mother. But obviously also, not just Old Testament passages looking forward to his coming. They expected a man would come. But when you see him in the Gospels, you see humanity all over him. I mean, you, you, you see... Uh, you see him being born of a human mother in, in the gospel accounts. You see he expresses human emotions 
time and time again in the Gospels. He got angry. Think about times when he got angry. He got angry at more than once. I mean, at the beginning of his ministry in John 2, when he overturned the tables uh, in, the, in, the, in the temple, when they were abusing the temple, he did that in John 2 at the beginning of his ministry. He did it again in Matthew 21, the end of his ministry. He expressed anger. He felt sorrow and wept in John 11. He, he felt over and over again, compassion moved him to do this, moved him to feed the 5,000, moved him to heal the sick. Compassion moved him to do all sorts of things. So he had human emotions. He, his, his, his life exhibited also human physical limitations. He got hungry. In, in, in the 40 days of, of temptation in the wilderness, he got hungry. And, the, and, and Satan tempted him to turn the stones into bread. So he was hungry. God, God doesn't, I mean, in Psalm 50, God says he's, he's not in need of anything. He doesn't get hungry. He's not in anything. He says, if, if I were hungry, would I tell you, he says in Psalm 50. And if I needed anything, would I ask you? He said, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. So we know God in his nature does not get hungry, is totally self-sufficient. Jesus got hungry. He is a man. He got tired. He slept in a boat on a stormy sea with his disciples. And then he woke up and he stilled the storm with a command. Deity and humanity all in one story. He got thirsty. He asked for a drink of water from the woman at the well. He said, I was thirst- I'm thirsty when he was hanging on the cross. He demonstrated at times he had limited knowledge. So think, for example, Mark 13, 32, but concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. That's speaking from his human nature. And the overwhelming testimony of the Gospels is that he bled and died. He's a man. And just unambiguous. He didn't just seem to be human. He was human. And I don't want to say he was human. Let me just, let me say he is human just like us. Jesus is not just past tense human. He's present tense now and forevermore. Because the scriptures teach that when Jesus took on our humanity, it wasn't just for 30-something years. It was forevermore. It was for all eternity forevermore. Where do we learn that? Acts 1, 11. Acts chapter 1, verse 11. After his resurrection, he's about to ascend back into heaven, and the disciples are around him, and he ascends back into heaven, and the disciples are looking up at the sky as they watched him go away, and while they're looking... Two angels appear to the disciples, and what do, what do the angels say? They say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you in he- into heaven, will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. So that means he will come not just as certainly as you saw him go into heaven, which is true. He will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven bodily, right? So Jesus' resurrection body, 
when he rose from the dead as a resurrected man, his resurrection body is like, the, to use the language of the scriptures, is the first fruits of, of our own resurrection bodies that we will receive when he returns. You know, Jesus' resurrection body is like the prototype of the body we will have for all eternity. That's, that's, that's how human he is. In other words, Jesus truly took on our humanity. Um, demonstrated at his, at his, as his conception, his birth, demonstrated in his life emotionally, physically, living, dying, rising, ascending as a man, promised to come back as a man, to take us with him into eternity and our humanity with him, right? Redeemed by faith through his. We'll say more about that in just a little bit. But for now, it's just important to see why in the Bible that we're, we're taught that Jesus is not only truly God, but he is truly man, two natures in one person. Two natures in one person. Here's how the Athanasian Creed would later confess it. Although he is God and human, yet Christ is not two but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by, God, by God's taking humanity to himself. God's taking humanity. He doesn't, where, did, where does he get that idea? Where does the Athanasian Creed get that idea? From the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2. If you have your Bible still open, find it Philippians 2 real quick. Philippians chapter 2. And just think carefully about what Paul says here. Philippians chapter 2. When you find that, I will read beginning in verse 5. So, we read beginning in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, that's deity, did not count equality with God, which he possessed, a thing to be grasped. That, that phrase right there means to be used for his own advantage. So when he was in the form of God, he did not use that, his deity to his own advantage when he, came, when he came. But, it says, he emptied himself, emptied himself. Or some of your translations may say, made himself nothing. Uh, something like that, but it literally it literally says he emptied himself, and there is a a heresy called the Kenotic his, uh, heresy, K E N O T I C, the Kenotic heresy, which that Greek word is kenao, which means I empty. It mean they 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 would take it to say that when Christ came, he literally emptied himself of his deity and became a man. He left his deity behind and became a man. Um, that, that's a heresy because it's not, it undermines our salvation again, and it's not at all what he's saying. Because look at how, look in this text how Paul says, what does Paul mean by emptied himself? Look how he emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking. You see that word? By taking. He didn't get rid of anything. He took something else on. He, he, he subtracted by adding. I mean, he took on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. Taking is the key word. He did not cease or pause being God. He took on our humanity. 
Truly God still, truly man forevermore. But remember what we said our aims tonight were. Um, what we wanted to think through. Not just what does the Scriptures teach us about this, and we've seen it teaches us that He's a man, and Scripture affirms this over and over again. The Old Testament affirmed this. New Testament does. Born of a human mother, emotionally, physically, died, rose, resurrection body. He's a man. And that's not merely what we want to know, though. The second thing we want to know about this is, why is it important? Why is this important? Why does it matter, right? Because it matters. I mean, it, yeah, it, it matters more than practically anything. <laughs> and it matters for at least two reasons. The first of those reasons is it provides the foundation for Jesus as the sinless Savior. The Old Testament is full of miraculous births, um, so to speak. The Old Testament, they're clear, clearly through all these crazy, miraculous births, they're clearly preparing the way for um, the idea that a, a Savior promised today would come in a similar way. I mean, it's pretty remarkable. Wesley Hill, in his book on the Apostles' Creed, lays this out so clearly. I commend that book to you. But you begin with Abraham, right? Think about the story of Abraham and what does God do with Abraham? He, God, God promises to Abraham and his wife Sarah in their very old age, and she is barren, cannot have a child, way past the, the age of having children. He promises them what? They're going to have a child. And not just that they're going to have a child, nation, they would, a nation would come from them, right? But not only that, but that all the nations of the world be blessed through their offspring. And when, when Sarah hears that, she laughs at the idea. So that when the promise does come to pass, and she does have a son, she names him Laughter, Isaac. Isaac, which means laughter, right? It was so far-fetched that he would be born, but he was. Isaac is the, is the first child born of that promise, born miraculously when, humanly speaking, it was inconceivable that they would have children and be born to confirm that promise that one day there would be an offspring to come through, through whom the nations of the world would be blessed. Moses, move forward in Old Testament history, Moses doesn't have a, 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 um, a miraculous birth, but he does have a pretty dramatic infancy. Think about Moses. He is born, but, the, but Pharaoh had already given a decree to, to murder all the, all the male children, and to escape the, the deathly decree that he'd already put down, uh, he is put in a, in a basket and sent down the Nile. By the way, that, that Hebrew word for basket there is the same word in Genesis for ark. <laughs> he was put in a little ark of his own, little Noah's ark, and sent down the Nile to escape, uh, to, 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 escape, to escape that death sentence. And he's raised, and what does that... That, that child grow to do, he grows to be used of God to lead his people in Exodus out of slavery in Egypt. In other words, to be one who would give a picture of an even greater salvation coming. Move on down the line in the Old Testament when the people of Israel were in the promised land, but before they had a king over them, God would rule and lead his people through a series of judges. Read about that. And... Um, the most well, one of the most well-known of those judges is Samson. 
I'm sure you've heard of Samson, who had somewhat of a miraculous birth. In Judges 13, an angel appeared to a woman that we're told was barren and had no children. And the angel told her in, in Judges 13, Behold, you are barren and, you have, and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. And Samson was that son who did what? Who led the people in victory and salvation against the Philistines. Again, just a picture of an even greater salvation coming following the storyline of the Bible itself. Move on down the line in the history. During the early days of the prophets coming on the scene, the prophet Samuel is sort of born in a somewhat miraculous way. His mother Hannah was barren, and she was praying for a child, and in answer to that prayer, God opened her womb, and she had Samuel. And the line of prophets in Israel who would foretell this coming Savior began with one whose birth was a miracle of God. All of these set the stage for the miracle of all miracles. When you come to the beginning of the New Testament, after a 400-year period of silence from God after Malachi, between Malachi and Matthew, and God finally speaks again, and what is the first thing he says? A child is to be born. But this one is going to be the miracle of all miracles because this one is going to be conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. This is far greater than all of those Old Testament examples that I just mentioned because even as remarkable as they were, for one thing, in their cases, God granted conception by His sovereign will in unexpected cases, but they still were born in the natural course of events, Right? The conception of Christ is obviously different than that. And for the other thing, if you look at all those other Old Testament examples, those that were born in, in miraculous ways were still very obviously sinners, right? Abraham, the father of our faith, he was still a liar. He lied twice and said Sarah was his sister and not his wife to protect his own skin. And he didn't believe he did not believe. He grew impatient believing the promise of God and, and tried to, tried to have, uh, did have a son through, um, through Hagar, right? Abraham was not a perfect man. Moses killed a man. Samson was a stupid, wicked man. Why? Because they were all still born in the natural course of the way babies come about, which means they were still the descendants of Adam. They were born in Adam, which means born in sin, with a sin nature, a fallen nature. And while their births point forward to an even greater miraculous birth, the, small, the smaller scale salvations that they were used to bring about were just faint pictures of a greater salvation that this other one was going to bring. And it was smaller scale because they were fallen and sinful themselves. Jesus, on the other hand, was not born in Adam because Joseph was merely the, the adop his adoptive father. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And therefore, he did not inherit human nature corrupted by original sin and therefore was not inclined toward all evil. Scripture says in Hebrews 4.15 that Jesus was one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So, and in this way, 
Jesus alone was perfectly suited to bring about the greater salvation that all of those Old Testament predecessors were only faintly pointing forward to. His sinless life, beginning at His conception by the Holy Spirit, fulfilled the law of God for us, fulfilled the law of God on our behalf because of the virgin birth, because of His conception by the Holy Spirit, which is the fountainhead of His sinless life. This is the reason you can stand before God by faith righteous. That's the reason you can. And His sinless life made Him a a perfect sacrifice for sinners on the cross since he had no sin of his own for which to die. He only had to die for ours. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So if Christ is not sinless, we are not saved. When we confess he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, we are confessing the very fountainhead of that gospel hope. And I said this Doctrine is important for two reasons. First, that it secures our hope of forgiveness of sins and righteousness before God in Christ. The other is that His miraculous birth is the dawn of the new creation. Is the dawn of the new creation. Jesus did not come just to make us new. He came to make all things new. He came to redeem fallen creation and bring about a new heavens and a new earth a new creation for His people, where a new heavens and a new earth where heaven comes to earth and we dwell with Him and He dwells with us. Where do we see that idea in Scripture? Well, I told you we would, before we were done, look at that other passage that talks about His birth. So turn to Luke chapter 1. This is the other passage where his birth is described. Luke chapter 1. When you find it, follow along with me as I read verses 30 through 35. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary asks a perfectly legitimate question. To the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. I want you to focus there on verse 35, that last verse. And this idea of the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary hovering over Mary, brooding over Mary to bring this about. It reminds you of the activity of the Holy Spirit in another important passage in the Bible, possibly. Here the Bible begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit hovering over this creation brought about this first creation, formed it into being. And now the angel promises Mary the, ho- the Holy Spirit will overshadow her and hover over her and brood over her in the same way to bring about a new creation, another creation through the one now conceived in her womb. Jesus is a second Adam. the beginning of a new creation. And whereas the first Adam sinned and plunged the first creation in which we now live into ruin and judgment, this creation groans, Romans 8 says. Jesus, the second Adam, Jesus, the last Adam, in perfect, sinless righteousness would make all things new in his own time and bring all his redeemed to dwell with him in a new heavens and new earth and a new creation. As Paul would say in Romans chapter 5, verses 15 to 17, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, that's the first Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, the last Adam, abound for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one man's trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary so that as God, he could take on our humanity as the last Adam and not only earn for us the forgiveness of our sins, but also the hope of eternal life with him in a new heaven's and a new earth. That's what we're confessing when we confess he was born of the, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary.